Would you like to show your appreciation to our worship group and all those guys that... work so hard week by week to facilitate us gathering and are part of our worshiping life. We are so grateful to you. I'd like to welcome you all this morning, but I'd particularly like to welcome two friends that are here with us, uh, staying in Northern Ireland for a little while. Um, Margaret and His Grace, the Archbishop of York, uh, John Santamu, are both friends of ours. They're worshiping with us this morning. Be easy on them, they're Anglicans. Would you like to welcome them amongst us? I um, say this as their friend, but also as someone who deeply loves this couple. They are remarkable in their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. They speak so often, so clearly, and so profoundly of the truth of the gospel and the power of scripture. And I am grateful for your ministries. Thank you so much. And thank you for being with us today. Would you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, as we continue our journey through um, this wonderful, wonderful record of the early church. And a message that I have entitled for this morning, An Empowered Church. Over the last four or five weeks, we have um, dissected chapter one, going through it bit by bit, as we've talked about a listening church, a called church, a faithful church, a Christ-centered church. And we come now to Acts chapter two. I'm going to read to you from verses one through to 13. As you know, I read from the New Revised Standard Version. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered. Because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. I think the Northern Ireland equivalent of they are filled with new wine would be they're polaxed. 
God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. As a way of honoring Eugene Peterson, who I met a number of times and who was a remarkable man, I'd like to read to you from these 13 verses from his paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. When the Feast of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, gale force. No one could tell where it came from. It filled the whole building. Then, like a wild fire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks. And they started speaking in a number of different languages as the Spirit prompted them. There were many Jews staying in Jerusalem just then, devout pilgrims from all over the world. When they heard the sound, they came on the run. Then when they heard, one after another, their own mother tongues being spoken, they were thunderstruck. They couldn't, for the life of them, figure out what was going on, and they kept saying, aren't these all Galileans? How come we're hearing them talk in our various mother tongues? And then he lists all the same places. And then we read, they're speaking our languages, describing God's mighty works. Their heads were spinning. They couldn't make head or tail of any of it. They talked back and forth, confused. What's going on here? Others joked. They're drunk on cheap wine. There are today around the world about 2.3 billion people, which is about a third of the world's population, who would self-identify as Christians. About 1.2 billion Roman Catholics. Depending on how you count them, and there's always arguments about how you count them with Protestants, between 800 and 900 million. Between 200 and 260 million Eastern Orthodox. Now, some Anglicans don't like to be classed as Protestants. So if you take them as their own, there are around 85 million of them. And there are around 280 to 300 million people who would identify as Pentecostals. And around 300 million that would describe themselves as Charismatics. That's around 600 million people that would point back to the experience of the book of Acts as a profoundly important one in their lives and shaping their understanding of who they are and what they do. But, of course, the day of Pentecost, what I want to talk to you about for a few minutes today, isn't the privilege or the possession of the 280 million classic Pentecostals, despite the fact that we often try to make it so. Nor is it the possession of the 300 million Charismatics, what we see in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, is, if you like, the possession and the birthright of every single person who is a follower of Jesus Christ. It is a promise to everyone who follows God, to everyone who has, been, uh, has come to living faith in Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. And it sits at the very heart of authentic, real, genuine, lasting Christian experience. In John chapter 15, um, Jesus said very simply in verse 5, without me, you can do nothing. In Acts chapter 1 that we've looked at in the last few weeks, Jesus has said on a couple of occasions to his disciples, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from me. 
You need me to give you power. You need me to be resident in you. In in John chapter 20, in that night that Jesus had been resurrected and he appeared to his disciples, we're told in John chapter 20 from verses 19 through to 22 that Jesus Christ said to his disciples in the upper room on that night, receive the Holy Spirit. And he breathed upon them, assuring them of his presence and of his peace and of his purpose in their lives. Yet the very same people upon whom he had said, receive the Spirit, upon whom he breathed, were told in Acts chapter one to wait until they had received power from on high so that they could be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. This morning, every single part of the Christian church believes in the importance and the centrality and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not the preserve of Pentecostals, and it's not the preserve of Charismatics. If I took you to one tradition in the church, they would believe that when a bishop came and lay his hands, laid his hands on you at confirmation, he would use words like receive the Holy Spirit as a symbol of the Spirit's presence being given or being transferred by the laying on of hands all the way down through the church's history to all who would receive him. I could bring you to Pentecostal and charismatic churches where this filling of the Spirit is experienced powerfully and profoundly and suddenly and people speak in tongues and they use gifts and they flow in the fullness of all that God has for them. I could take you to other church traditions that believe and teach that you cannot be a Christian without the presence and the power of the Spirit. They would point back to Ephesians chapter one or to Romans chapter eight and they would remind you of the sound Pauline doctrine that in order to be a child of God, in order to be born again, the Spirit of God has to be at work in you. You can't call him father without that spirit of adoption resting in you. And yet, here in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, there is a profoundly important moment. What is it that is so controversial about the power of the Holy Spirit? Because if Jesus said, without me you can do nothing, then surely every Christian should be absolutely dependent on Jesus Christ for his power. There's none of us, whatever tradition we come from, whatever label we carry, none of us can live our Christian life without him. You can't pray without him. You can't understand the Bible without him. You can't worship without him. You can't witness without him. You can't have assurance of faith without him. You can't have confidence without him. You can't grow in virtue without him. You can't serve other people without him. You can't make a good marriage without him. You can't be a good pastor without him. You can't be a good father without him. If you are a Christian, you need him. Yes? Some of you are convinced. Others are, well, it depends where you're going with a sermon, Malcolm. I think the controversy is the experience of the presence and the power of the Spirit can be for some people so very frightening. And whilst all denominations and streams in their articulation of faith, including the Pentecostal church, believe in and celebrate the power and the presence of the Spirit, we're not all very good at demonstrating that and allowing him room to move amongst us. I've been trying to think about an analogy that might work for you to help you understand what I'm trying to say. And I want to come back for a moment to the image of family. I'm a Duncan, spelled D-U-N-C-A-N. It's a surname, not a first name, by the way. So many people call me Duncan. I just answer to anything now. 
Duncan, Malcolm, James, James, Malcolm, Duncan, Malcolm, James, Duncan. A friend um, just the other day said to me, you are a very, very um, blessed man. You have three first names, uh, Malcolm, James, Duncan. I'm part of a family, an extended family. There are loads of us. Everywhere you look, there's a Duncan. And there are times when I remember that. And there are times when I forget it. There are times when I live out of that sense of common identity as a family member. And there are times when I don't. There are times when I enjoy it. I don't always feel like a Duncan. I don't get up tomorrow morning and say, I'm going to be a Duncan today. I don't look for ways of being a Duncan, do I? I'm a Duncan. Can't do anything about it. I'm a Duncan. You're a Christian. If you're born again, if you are converted, if you're in a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and that's the only way to become a Christian, you don't become a Christian by joining a church. You don't become a Christian by learning a statement of faith. You don't become a Christian by any other right. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus, if you followed him through the waters of baptism, if you have become part of the universal body of Christ through that initiation into the family of God, then you've been brought into living relationship with God. That can't happen without the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't mean that you feel him and sense him every moment of every day. You don't get up every day and think, I am filled with the Spirit and feel him and sense him. There are times when you go on about your daily lives and there are times when you will celebrate your identity as a Duncan, if you're me, and there are times that you definitely don't. When you see something, you think, oh. When you see one of your family members heading towards you, you think, oh no, not, not that one again. <laughs> and as Christians, we are bound together by the power and the presence of the Spirit, but it doesn't mean we always feel or behave Christianly. I want to talk to you about why the day of Pentecost is so important. And I want to suggest to you that there needs to be a rediscovery of the power and the presence and the purpose of the Holy Spirit in every believer's life. That God wants to pour his spirit out upon every believer. That he wants to endure them with power from on high. That he wants them, us, to have an assurance of our salvation. He wants us to grow in the evidence of his presence in our lives. He wants to give us boldness for witness and confidence in the gospel. He wants to help us understand that the Bible can be trusted. He wants to release gifts in us that can be used by him to reach others. That there is nothing, nothing that can replace the power of the Spirit in our lives. And I want each of you to experience that power. Each of you to welcome and embrace the power of the Spirit in your life every moment of every day for the rest of your lives. Not just here on a Sunday morning and an 11 o'clock service when you think, gosh, the, the sung worship was good this morning. So it was. But every moment, everywhere you go, in everything you face, carrying the Spirit's presence and power with you. I want to try and help you understand just a few things. First of all, what was the day of Pentecost? Secondly, what does it mean to be empowered? And thirdly, when I talk about baptism in the Spirit, what do I mean? So first of all, let me try to help you understand what was happening on the day of Pentecost. In the passage, particularly if you read the beginning of it, verses 1 and 2, you will identify the following things. That there was wind and there was fire and there were languages or tongues or unspoken utterances, unknown utterances that were spoken by those that were present. 
120 people from both genders across various backgrounds gathered together in one room in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit came and rested upon them. And depending on how you translate the Greek words, it sounds like there was a hurricane or a gale or a strong wind that swept through the room. Everybody knew. And when they looked at one another, they could see fire resting on each other's heads. Flames of fire or tongues of fire. A sense of the presence of God resting in this room. And we're told that as they did that, they began to speak, the Greek word is glossolalia in languages or dialects or words that they hadn't learned naturally. In 1 Corinthians 13, the apostle Paul points towards those languages and he describes them as the languages or the tongues of men and of angels. Here, it looks like the languages that were used were human languages because the people that had come to Jerusalem for a feast heard them. Mesopotamians, people from Ethiopia, Cappadocia, Asia, Europe, from all across the then known world, they traveled to Jerusalem for a particular feast that I'll explain in a moment. And as they listened to this kerfuffle happening in the upper room, they didn't hear, they heard something being said in their language. They understood it. It made sense to them. And what they heard, if you read verse 11, were these 120 men and women declaring the great and mighty acts of God. It made perfect sense to them. They were listening as these people who hadn't learned languages were explaining to them the greatness of God in their own mother tongue. Powerful moment in the birthing of the church. A moment never to be repeated. We sing a hymn sometimes in churches. We need another Pentecost. We don't. What we need is to enter into the power of Pentecost now. The presence and the promise of Almighty God for each of his children. Pentecost was a moment when God fulfilled a promise that he had made to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He promised them that he would give them power. He promised them that the law would no longer live on the outside of them, but instead it would be animated on the inside of them. In the book of Jeremiah and the book of Ezekiel, he told them that there would come a day when he would place his law and his life and, and, and his spirit in their hearts. And he would replace their hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. Pentecost was the day that that happened. It was the moment that the Spirit was breathed upon the church. Listen to what I'm about to say. Never to be taken away. From that moment until now, God has been active in his church and he will never cease being active. He is committed to his people more than his people are committed to him. We call it Pentecost because it took place 50 days after Easter, and the root word of Pentecost is 50 days. It took place um, seven weeks and one day after Easter, 40 days after Easter. The ascension took place. I preached on that a few weeks ago, and I said to you that many of us kind of run past the ascension as if it's not even part of the story. But without the ascension, without Jesus being glorified and raised up to the highest heights, this day couldn't have happened. The Spirit of God breathed upon his people 10 days after Jesus had ascended and gone to heaven where he continues his ministry for us at this very moment. And this moment was a moment of empowering. The Jews on Pentecost had something called the Festival of Weeks for, um, in which they remembered the harvest originally. If you want to know more about that, 
I'm conscious of time. You can read in Deuteronomy chapter 16 and Leviticus chapter 23 about that. It was originally a season that they celebrated the provision of God, the harvest. And in the, feast of, in, the, in the festival of weeks, they would celebrate all week. And then in the festival of harvest, which was on Pentecost Day, as we understand it, there would be a huge and wonderful celebration of all of God's goodness and faithfulness and provision and care and promise to sustain his people. That's why all the Jews had come to Jerusalem. That's why there were so many of them there. They were there for this great festival. Now, something that people often don't realize is that in AD 70, um, some years after this event, about 40, 37, 38 years after this event, um, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And as a result of the temple being destroyed, the festival of weeks in the Jewish community became more focused on the giving of the law at Sinai than it was on um, harvest. And from then on, it has been that. What you see, however, in Acts chapter 2 is a combination of all of those powerful motifs on this Jewish festival, God doing something for his body around the world throughout eternity that would give them grace and strength and power. This was the fulfillment of promises made by God to his people all the way through the Old Testament story. Next week, I'm going to pick up the sermon that Peter preached after these events. So I'm not going to say too much about that at the moment, other than to say this. If you go to Acts chapter 2, from verse 14 through to verse 36, you will read a powerful explanation from Peter of what was happening on the day of Pentecost. From verses 17 down to 20, he quotes from what we describe as Joel chapter 2. I want to read it to you. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your own old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy and I will show portents in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then in verses 25 through to 28, he quotes Psalm 16. David says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One experience corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Talking about who Jesus was and why he had come. This day of empowerment was deeply rooted in Jewish understanding of God's purposes. Deeply rooted in his promise to empower his people so that they could shine as witnesses for him. It wasn't fundamentally about a feeling. It wasn't even fundamentally about the experience. It was fundamentally about empowerment. It was fundamentally about being adopted. It was a fundamental issue of assurance and knowing that God was on our side and living within us and would guide us in truth and righteousness and hope. The day of Pentecost was that. The Eastern Orthodox Church celebrates Pentecost all the way from Easter through to Pentecost Day. This was also in a very beautiful way, the evidence of God's presence and grace. To help you understand what I mean, 
I want to explain something to you. There are several things that happen on the day of Pentecost that have a root in the story of God in the Old Testament that are often overlooked, but are important for you understanding what this empowerment means. First of all, you've got to go all the way back, not with me now, but you've got to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 20 and begin to read the story of Moses receiving God's commandments and instructions around how the gathered community of faith were to live, the Jewish people as they became known, the Hebrews as they would have been understood then. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 15, something very extraordinary is recorded. If you can come back to the, there with me for a moment, I would appreciate it. This is Moses on the mountain with God, with Aaron and Nadab and Abihu. And here's what we read in verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people. Moses entered the cloud and went up onto the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. If you read this story of the encounter of Moses with God on Mount Sinai through the Exodus narrative, you discover the following things. Fire, cloud, and wind. What do you discover on the day of Pentecost? Fire, cloud, and wind. Something of equal significance to the giving of the law on Sinai is taking place here. That's quite important. And it's quite exciting. But this time, it's not resting on one man, Moses. It's resting on all of the gathered community, 120 of them. And as we'll discover next week, it's spilled out into the whole community. It was a promise for all who believed. It's a powerful, powerful and important thing. Law and grace coming together. The two were never divorced. They were never supposed to be separated out. But here on the day of Pentecost, we see the Spirit bringing the truth of who God is, the power of what God wants, and the purpose of God explained in the law of God and placing it in the hearts of men and women. To be a New Testament believer isn't to ignore the law, it's to be able to live it because of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. What a remarkable thing. There's something else that's often overlooked here. And it is that if you were to go um, to Exodus chapter 32, you would read a story which is remarkably important. Exodus chapter 32, verse 38. I love to hear Bibles flick. Flick away. Or beep. I prefer flick. Verse 28, I beg your pardon. <clears throat> this is when the golden calf has been built and um, Moses comes down and sees it and it's a disaster. The sons of Levi, have you got verse 28? The sons of Levi did as Moses commanded. And about 3,000 of the people fell on that day. Moses said, today you have ordained for yourselves for the service of the Lord, each one of the, at the cost of a son of our brother, and so have brought a blessing on yourselves this day. Now go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 41, and read how many people were converted.
And on that day, about 3,000 people were added to the church. God is reversing something. He's, he's doing something of spiritual significance. What happened at Sinai when people rejected him and when they turned away from his law and they turned away from his purposes is being reversed in his people as he adds 3,000 people. On a day, 3,000 people died when the golden calf was worshipped. Here on this day, as they worship God, as they acknowledge his power and his presence, 3,000 people are born again. And that leads us into something which is really important and often overlooked, particularly by Pentecostals. This story, this day of Pentecost, is rooted in the story of God in the Bible. Let me give you another couple of examples. In Genesis chapter 11, we see languages disrupted, people's communication broken down. In Acts chapter 2, we see communication strengthened and restored by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Exodus chapter 32, we see people dying as a consequence of disobedience. In Acts chapter 2, we see 3,000 people born again as a consequence of submission to the power of God. This is a strategic and important moment in the life of God's people on earth. It's a moment when God breathes out his power and he says, things will never be the same again. My power, my presence, my purpose, my very essence is available for people to be touched by, changed by, transformed by. And not just the privileged Moses or the privileged few. Israel refused to go to the mountain. That's why Moses went on his own. In the book of Acts, God is opening up the power of his glory and his presence for all of his people. If you are breathing and you are a Christian, the power of the Spirit is for you. You're not convinced? This is about empowerment. Inwardly, communally, upwardly, and outwardly. The Spirit is given to you and to me. Not to give a shiver and a shake. Nothing wrong with that. But so that in the very depths of your being... You might know that you are a child of God. The gift of assurance of salvation. To know deep in your knower <laughs> that you belong to him. To have a, such a deep sense of his promises to you that you have an assurance. 21st century Christianity in Europe is losing its understanding of assurance. God wants you to know in your soul that you belong to him. That's only possible by the Holy Spirit. That inward sense of his presence changes everything. He wants us to know communally that we are part of one body. I'm so glad that I had written this message long before I knew that my friends were coming to church with me this morning. Because the reality is, there is no distinction in the family of God. To be a child of God is to be a child of God. We share the same identity. We share the same father. We share the same DNA. In a very powerful sense, let me explain this to you and do not panic. It's a good image. But I need to tell you not to panic because I know some of you will panic. In Eastern Orthodoxy, when Paul talks about the church being the body of Christ, <laughs> They believe it. 
They don't think it's a metaphor. <laughs> they actually think that we are the organic body of Jesus. And how does a body function? What does it need? Breath. Think about this. You won't hear it very often. Something I'm fascinated by. If the church of Jesus Christ <clears throat> is created by our Father, is redeemed by his Son, then we as one organic body, wherever we are, wherever we are from, are breathed into, inspired, and enlivened by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Everywhere around the globe. Oh, it's so exciting. Everywhere around the planet where men and women are meeting in Jesus' name, the Spirit of God is present, being breathed in and breathed out and breathed in and breathed out. He unites us. He binds us together. You may really, really, really struggle with the idea that you're going to need to spend eternity with me. I'm delighted. I'm praying God puts me next door to you. We are united by the Spirit. So where has he been when we would rather kill each other than worship together? What happened to him when we closed the doors on people who don't agree with every point of doctrine that we've got? How did we end up doing that? Here in this beautiful island that I call home, how have we allowed ourselves to become so separate from one another that we can't see Jesus in each other? And you might say to me, well, you're talking about Roman Catholics. Not just that. Not just that. I was talking to somebody yesterday who'd come from a brethren background. And he said that years ago, somebody said to him, you're from a brethren background. But now, you know, would you brethren have spoken to Catholics? He said, we wouldn't even have spoken to Baptists. <laughs> We are so quick to cut ourselves off. Do you know what a baptism of the Spirit for a believer means? You see Jesus in one another. You celebrate the kingdom wherever you see it. It becomes an enlivening, hopeful, inclusive thing. It doesn't mean you ignore sin. It doesn't mean you ignore doctrine. Sometimes it's harder to argue with doctrine with your brothers and sisters than it is with those that aren't in the family of faith. This does something communally. When one weeps, we all weep. When one is persecuted, we're all persecuted. The Spirit gives us a connection with each other. A beautiful, powerful, eternal connection. Thirdly, He empowers us upwardly. He empowers us for worship. He empowers us to understand His Word he teaches us how to pray. He prays within us in ways that we don't understand ourselves. I don't know about you, but as I was worshiping this morning, and I'm not a person that feels things a lot, I felt the presence of God. I sensed his power. I think that's partly because of the way the, the guys that led that team had prepared. Thank you for being so faithful. I think it's partly because we are being clearer and clearer about what our worship team is for. And I'm grateful about that. We've appointed uh, Stuart McKegg as our worship director and he's doing a great job of that. We'll be um, celebrating that with other people who are stepping into new roles on the 25th of November. But I think it's also because of this passage. 
That God knew that this is what we were going to be preaching on, this sense of commonness, this sense of togetherness, this sense of unified purpose and heart. When God anoints us by his spirit, he releases in us the power to praise. How many of you want to praise more effectively? How many of you long for a deeper revelation of the Bible? How many of you want to be able to read scripture and understand it more clearly? I would give my hind teeth to understand it more clearly. How many of us want empowerment in prayer? Want to be guided in how to live? Want to be guided in how to witness, how to serve? That's all available through the power of the Spirit. Inwardly, communally, upwardly and outwardly. He empowers us for witness. On this day, these people that spoke other languages and oh, that every person in Northern Ireland could hear the gospel in their mother tongue. And I don't mean just dialects. I mean that people from East Belfast would have the gospel so culturally connected into their lives that it would make sense. That the people that live in Coltra, the people that live in the Arts Peninsula, from the most expensive house in Northern Ireland to the cheapest house in Northern Ireland, that we would be a church that could make sense of the gospel and present it in a way that they hear and they understand. They heard and they understood. And throughout Acts, the Spirit is the Spirit of emboldenment for witness. He empowers you to point to Jesus. He's constantly pointing back to him. A wonderful friend of mine once wrote a book called The Giving Gift in which he described the Holy Spirit as the spirit without a face, as a, as a person without a face. He described him as the lamplights on the old Victorian stages that lit the stage but couldn't be seen themselves. The spirit in us illuminates Jesus he illuminates Christ in the church. He illuminates Christ to the world. He points to him so that the world might know him. Inwardly, communally, upwardly, and outwardly we need this power. I don't care what you call it. In John chapter 7 verse 38, Jesus said, Out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. In the book of Acts, he describes being filled with the Holy Spirit I don't care whether you call it the filling, the encountering, the anointing, the indwelling. I, I couldn't care less. Pick whatever theological word you like. But without him, we can do nothing. And there is a promise of his power for every single person who trusts Jesus Christ. And that promise is for you and for me. How often should I be filled I think there is one first encounter with God's grace and power through the Spirit. For many, that's a conversion. For others, they are converted and it dawns on them like a tide rising. For others, there's a, an experience after their conversion in which they become aware of the power and the presence of God. That's what happened to me. I was converted on the first Sunday in February 1986 and I had a recognizable, clear experience of the Holy Spirit about two or three months later in a prayer meeting with bullets being fired up and down the Whitewell Road. I think it probably prompted me to pray more effectively. And the Holy Spirit fell on me. And I spoke in languages that I had never learned. I still do every day of my life as part of my prayer life. I don't use the gift of tongues in the way that many modern Pentecostals do. I believe that it is primarily for me a language of prayer and devotion and adoration and that it is occasionally used in the body. 
We'll teach on that at some point next year. But I had a clear experience of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Other people have that as a gush or as a flow or as a rising tide. Others grow into that. But there is a power of God available for all people. And how often do I need that subsequently? Well, this is where I'm so grateful for Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle Paul says, Be being filled with the Spirit. Many have said, and then he says, Do not get drunk with wine, which is what they thought was happening here. But be being filled with the Spirit. Many um, people have interpreted that to mean that you lose control or you lose power or you're flopping about like somebody who's had too much to drink. I don't for one minute think that that's what that means, although that seems to happen to some people. I'm not criticizing that. But to be under the influence of alcohol is to have your mind, your thinking, your sight, your actions, your intentions, your heart, your will, your courage, your relationships, your day-to-day choices, your priorities. Everything is influenced when you're drunk, right? You're all saying, never been drunk, Pastor. (laughs) For those of you that... I've never been drunk. For those of you that have been drunk... Everything's affected. To be being filled with the Spirit, to be drunk with the Spirit, is that everything is under the influence of God. Everything. Your money, your decisions, your priorities, your relationships, your job, your life, your walking about, everything is influenced. That's the kind of Spirit-filled life I want And if I'm honest with you, I don't always live it. There are moments when I rely on my own strength. There are moments when I rely on my own grace, my own courage, instead of plugging into God's. But to be filled with the Spirit, day in and day out, is to move in works of power. Now here's the thing before I finish. It's to know that sense of conviction and assurance. It's that inward communal, outward and upward power that God has for all of us. But don't expect everyone to celebrate Because on the day of Pentecost, there were two different crowds. There were those that looked and said, this is amazing. I hope you're all in that camp. And there were those that said, they're nutters. I hope none of you are in that camp. God can do whatever he likes in this house because he's the boss. He can move as he likes. He can touch as he likes. He can transform as he likes. He's the boss. I'm not the boss. I am an under shepherd of the great shepherd. And my desire is that it will be noised abroad in the words of Mark 2 that Jesus is in this house by the power of his spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is present, lives are changed. Words take on new significance. Relationships deepen. Hope is birthed. Gifts are released. To be part of a community empowered by the Spirit is to be part of a community that dreams of great things. To be part of a community that opens doors for people, that reaches out to the broken, that is deeply connected with God in worship. I don't want us to become a lecture theater, nor do I want us to become an entertainment factory. My prayer is that God by his spirit would breathe on us in such a way that there will be cues to encounter God wherever we meet because people know that what we do is real, that God is present, that his power is for us and not against us. I love this hymn. 
It was written by Annie Hawkes in 1874. We're not going to sing it today. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee every hour. Enjoy or pain. Come quickly and abide or life is vain. I need thee every hour. Teach me thy will and thy rich promises in me fulfill. I need thee every hour. Most holy one. Oh, make me thine indeed, thy blessed son. You don't need more religion. And there's nothing wrong with religion. You don't need more church and there's nothing wrong with church. What we need is the power and the presence and the efficacy of the Holy Spirit enabling everything that we have experienced in knowing God to come to bear in our lives. I say this humbly. And it's a word of encouragement, not a word of rebuke. Can we please not talk about waiting on some kind of breakthrough? Looking for a moment somewhere in the future where God is at work. Disaffected or displeased with what he's doing now. For those of you that are part of our church family and are becoming part of this church family, take a look around you. God is already at work. He's already changing lives. He's already saving souls. He's already rescuing families. We're not waiting on him doing something. We are entering into what he is doing today. This power of God that we need is not something that we're waiting for sometime in the future. It's present now. It's here now. He's here now. Our worship, our lives, our faithfulness, our reading, our obedience, our discipleship. He's present now. I'm not going to spend my life the worst a mistake that many charismatics make is they're constantly waiting for the next big idea. I'm enjoying God's presence today. I'm enjoying God's rescuing power today. I'm enjoying the power of his word today. I believe he's already at work in our church. I am seeing it and I'm I'm affirming it. I'm naming it. I'm celebrating it. I'm standing in the midst of it and I'm saying, I am enjoying what you're doing because you're at work amongst us. Now continue your work by the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you please stand with me? I am getting more and more confused about when and why you clap. (laughs) I love it, but I'm completely confused by it, and I'm very grateful. Um, Let's clap the Lord, shall we, for his grace and his mercy. (laughs) We have a prayer clinic that happens every Tuesday morning from 11 until 1. The guys that are in it are great at praying for people. If you want to have a fresh encounter with God, pop in. They'd love to see God moving in power in your life. Now, some of you might think, are you going to have a big prayer line, Malcolm, that will go until about two o'clock now? No, I'm not. I love them, but I don't have them every week. Instead, as we sing, I'm very close to you, David. That's a bit intimidating. (laughs) As we sing, I want to invite you to open your soul to the Holy Spirit. As we worship him now, make this your prayer. And if God gives you new languages to speak in, 
then whisper them out as you worship. Nobody else will hear you. If he gives you a sense of assurance of his grace, then thank God for that. If he gives you a deep hunger for his word, if he gives you an assurance of his salvation, if he begins to minister into your life, just welcome it. And this afternoon, when no one else is looking, find some time on your own with God. Go for a walk, get in your knees, sit in your room and say, God, I want all that you have for me. I want to be empowered by you. I want your presence to flow in me and through me. Lord, we want you to move in power. Release your spirit upon your people as we worship you now and fill us afresh or for the first time with the living power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.